0: Hello there and welcome to episode 34 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. This show is about bringing people together from all over the world to share stories about bicycles and people. It's an open door, big tent type of show where people from different groups in the cycling world can get together and learn about each other. In this episode, we have Mike Wolf from American Pickers and Antique Archaeology sharing tons of different stories about all different parts of bicycle life. We hear about the Rhode Island School of Design's Mars Bike Project. And we explore that nagging feeling that some of us have in the back of our heads that says, dedicate your whole life and go all in for bicycles with one example of a guy who did and then changed his mind. I appreciate all the people listening in all 50 states and over 50 countries, thank you. You have many podcasts to choose from, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. You Here at Bike Karma, we work really hard to try and make everything sound as good as possible. So just a warning, you will be able to tell that this next story was done over the phone, but the stories are awesome. When I first started writing the Bike Karma Project, I didn't know if it was going to be a book, blog, podcast. I just knew I had collected a bunch of bicycle stories and I wanted to share them because stories are how we connect and relate as human beings. When I did the first podcast, I had in my mind a wish list of three people to talk about bicycles. It was pie in the sky. It was like, these are the three people someday maybe I'll get. In no particular order, it was Greg LeMond, the likable first American to win the Tour de France. Oprah Winfrey, because it's Oprah and i don't think anybody has gotten her bicycle story yet and mike wolf from american pickers in antique archaeology a show that i had watched over and over and over again Growing up, I lived next door to an older couple whose property was just like the pics Mike and Frank go on. The guy had done everything in his long life. He had been a Harley Davidson dealer and he had built houses in the neighborhood. He had gone through numerous jobs. His yard was full of shed after shed of treasures, oil cans, glass bottles, bicycle parts car parts the smells of rust and the feeling of history just standing there one of his piles was like what someone who loves art feels when they stand in front of a great masterpiece My favorite item on his property was the back half of a car. It was the most amazing thing and one of the most frustrating things because I wanted to be in this car rolling down the road, but obviously it was cut in half. The story that I was able to put together bits and pieces over a few years was that he and a guy went in on buying the car. And when they went their separate ways, they cut the car in half, which makes no sense and yet does kind of make sense on some level. The time I spent in and around that car filled in a lot of daydreaming hours during my childhood. So watching the show where Mike and Frank pick through people's sheds and garages uncovering antique artifacts and uncovering stories speaks to me on a plane that goes all the way back to my formative years with my neighbor fred and my dad and all the other old timers who have since moved on it may even be part of why i rescue old bicycles is finding this camaraderie in the universe this river this flow of people who tinker in their workshops and build things and fix things so when i finally got up the courage having enough episodes under my belt and feeling like i had practiced enough to get there and knock on the door i messaged him online and his publicist got a hold of me thank you so much julie nathanson for doing all that work behind the scenes so he called me at the end of a roller coaster week of highs and lows i got a new bike earlier in the week then two days later my son needed an emergency appendectomy and then i got his call on friday so it was a week of highs and lows my son's okay now The conversation we had wasn't anything like I imagined in my head. We didn't really talk about old bicycles that much. We talked in a common language of loving bicycles, but it wasn't like the show. So I thought to myself, it's kind of easy to put people in a box. We do it to make sense of our world, but we always need to remember to leave the lid open. I had an idea of him being into only antique bikes from watching him on the show. But people are three-dimensional, and he has a huge database of knowledge in his head about all ages of bikes, past, present, and future. So it didn't have the conversation I thought. I was going to have with him, but I had an awesome conversation with a guy who I really respect in many levels and who I understand as being more than just the person he plays on TV now. He's a guy who loves bikes, loves history, and he's a good person. So here's my story. Check one out of three on my wish list of dream interviews with Mike Wolf from American Pickers.
1: My name is Mike Wolf. I've got a TV show on the History Channel called American Pickers. I'm a bike enthusiast, and um, I've got a six-year-old little girl. I'm a Scorpio, and I love Thai food. <laughs> 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 love it.
2: You're a Scorpio. How are you doing? Scorpio there are you? What's Scorpio
1: your, your well? birthday? 10-24. Okay, I'm uh, the sixth. November
2: 6th. Yeah, I got the Dr. Pepper number. I don't yeah. know how that oh, Yeah, there out. you
1: go. I'm uh, an old guy, man. I just turned 54, so I'm getting okay. up there. Been around the bicycle scene a long time.
2: I was born in 1970.
1: Okay. Yeah, well, I was born in 1964,
2: oh,
3: and I
1: graduated okay. from high school in 1982. And in 1979, I was a freshman, and I skimped and saved and... Scraped up cash from anything I could do, and I had a full campy bike in '79. I think it was a Raleigh, and that was those were good times, you know, to be around road bikes because there was a lot of things transitioning. Then we, back then we were, you know, still riding in cutoff shorts and tennis shoes, and then the first time I ever saw lycra shorts or road bike shoes was on a ragbri. And I'm sure you're familiar with RagBri, the Des Moines Register's annual bike ride across Iowa. Yep. So there was a lot of guys there from all over the country riding that, and I think I was riding a <laughs> I was riding a Kabuki at the time, and uh, I got into a pack of guys, and we were we were just cruising, man. And it was the first time that I'd ever seen lycra shorts, wool shorts, C D shoes. I was familiar with, like, toe clips, obviously, and Alfredo uh, straps, but never saw anybody with actually road bike shoes on, and I remember we were cruising super fast, passing people, and I was just amazed on how fast these guys were, because, you know, up until that, time my world was very small in regards to riding and the people that i rode with i mean we all we put together little rides we'd go out on some distances but we'd never had any way to gauge where we were you know in regards to strength and our sprinting ability and and our endurance ability so that rag bride that year was like a wake-up call to how painful (laughs) cycling can actually be
2: now, had you been riding bikes your whole childhood?
1: Yeah, my mom bought me a 20-inch wheel bike, brand new bike from K and K Hardware in Bettendorf, Iowa, and you know immediately I pulled the banana seat off of it and the ape hanger handlebars, you know, converted it to like a, a BMX bike. Um, a lot of guys were doing that, you know, they were taking Schwinn crates and pulling the springers off and putting, you know. Hard plastic racing seats on them and crossbar handlebars, you know, and knobby tires. And then, you know, a lot of guys, they wanted to spend the money too, were putting a heavier gauge spoke and stuff and buying different hubs, large flange hubs. When I got into really, really riding, I was still riding down tube shifter stuff, non index non-index stuff. I mean, it was it was a neat time to be in it because I can remember the first time I ever saw an STI shifter. It was a wooden prototype. I worked at a bicycle shop and we were at the Cab to show the Chicago area bike dealer show. And we were in a booth, a Shimano booth, and they were showing us these STI levers and, and they had the whole mechanism, but it was in wood and uh, we were blown away with it and really kind of didn't, couldn't even imagine it, obviously, getting to the scale that it was. It was almost like looking at a robot, you know. Back then, you're like, oh, yeah, that's cool, but will it ever come to fruition, you know. And then SRAM... Grip Shift that was coming onto the scene a little bit as well and they were doing some race sponsor stuff and I remember racing at the uh, Downers Grove Criterium Illinois State Criterium Champ- Championships in Downers Grove, Illinois for the Chicago Sun-Times and SRAM Grip Shift had had uh, a booth there and I was riding on um, I think I was riding on Campy Chorus at that time and it was still down tube shifter obviously but that's when Camp Ignolo was playing with the idea of okay depending on what freewheel you ride what chain you ride they were going to put a different disc inside of the shifter so there were the discs were actually different colors it was like a cog there were different colors and so you would line up the cog to like say you put a blue cog in the shifter then you would ride a regina chain a regina freewheel you know it was like the first Campagnolo index shifting and it was it was it was crap I mean, it was it was it was so bad. It was like kind of like their Delta breaks, you know. I mean, those things were so beautiful; they were incredible. But you know, they never actually worked because there was like no articulation to them, meaning like they were either on or off, you know. And so they were beautiful breaks, but they never really worked. And that was when Campagnolo, to be honest with you, almost didn't have to work perfect because they didn't have much competition. I mean obviously Tour was around, they had Superb Pro and um, you know, Shimano was out there but Campagnolo was still king and no matter what you wrote, if it was a Wiener or a Botecchia or De Rosa or a Maze or Whatever it was, you wanted Campagnolo on your bike. You wouldn't even think about putting a a Japanese product on your bike. And obviously, things have changed so much since then. But, you know, that whole transition, mountain bikes coming into play and Schwinn dealers disappearing overnight, you know, it was was a neat time. I was actually working in and running a local shop when all of that stuff was happening.
2: So you really miss the whole balloon bicycle phase you basically started coming into it in a time where they were probably fairly uncool to the masses and people were going right for the 10 speed boom
1: yeah i mean well there were still cruisers out there you know i mean there wasn't like you know 26 by 2.125 balloon tire old stuff it was around but you know there was some middleweight bikes stuff when i was a kid but by the time i had hit the ground running actually working at a store you know road bikes were king the guy that i worked for he was a Raleigh dealer And so we had the Raleigh Peak, the Raleigh Chill, the Raleigh Instinct. And these were, I don't know if you'd call them thermally bonded or glued or lugged frame sets where some of it, I think, was aluminum and some of it wasn't. They still had steel forks on them. The mountain bike craze was really hitting. You know, Diamondback was obviously really strong. That GT was strong. Specialized was strong. Gary Fisher was, you know, still a handmade builder before Trek bought them. So I watched All that happened, and then you know Schwinn came out with their homegrown series, and that was really cool. But it was just a little too late. The the problem with Schwinn was, you know, was, was a problem in some ways towards the end. Like meaning, like if you were a Schwinn dealer. It was like having a job for life back, you know, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 40s. You know, if you were a Schwinn dealer, you knew that you were going to do well because they weren't opening Schwinn dealers on every corner. They had the best product out there. It was an American-made brand, and they had anything from A to Z. They had a great juvenile line. They had a great adult line. So Schwinn was very, very loyal to their dealers, and their dealers were very loyal to them. So I grew up. In the Quad Cities, and right when mountain bikes first started coming out and the craze was hitting, you know Schwinn didn't jump on board with that. They thought that was that was a fad that was going to come and go very quickly. And so I can remember five Schwinn dealers closing. Over that five year gap of where that all was arcing and changing. By the time mountain bikes did come out in the Schwinn line and by the time Schwinn started realizing, hey, we really need to amp up our dealer base. You know, most of our dealers are at retirement age now. We need to get a younger dealer base started. It was all starting to come down for them. I can remember I went to the Leslie Heineman auction in Chicago and that was in 92. When they were auctioning off the Schwinn family collection of antique bikes and I sat next to Frank Schwinn right there in the front row and it was, it was, it was, it was fascinating and to be honest with you, I really, I did understand how historic that day was. I mean, here's a brand that was around from the, you know, the 1890s until they, uh, until they ran it into the ground and basically their loyalty to these older dealers you know and i don't know if you remember but when you, like when i was a kid if you walked into a schwinn dealership it was like walking into obviously something fascinating but it was it was very clinical in some ways like everybody had a schwinn shirt on they all had the same pants on they all were very um robotic in regards to what they were doing as far as what they were selling um they didn't carry any other product other than than their own it was it was uh it was intimidating in some ways you know and, yes. and and a lot of these you know, a lot of these dealers were older you know they these, some of these guys were in their 70s when I was a kid and they were still Schwinn dealers and they'd been Schwinn dealers for 50 years there was a shop in Iowa City called Novotny's Schwinn and that uh, everybody was waiting for the day the doors closed on that thing if you were an antique bicycle collector because you knew you knew that basement was full of amazing stuff
2: Yeah, I mean, we we love to say, you know, support our local bike shops. And if you have a good one, they're great. But some of those old school bicycle store dealerships were so intimidating that people couldn't wait to buy their bicycles anywhere else because they had a monopoly on it. There was one place in town you could go. And there was a different dynamic in the day. And that's part of why it turned, I think.
1: Yeah, it was different. And look at the average price of a bike back then and what it is now. I mean, when I had my shop, I had had three different shops. I had Two up and running at the same time. And, you know, the average sale of a bike back then was $300. So anytime anybody's going to spend $300, you know, it can be intimidating, especially when you've got enthusiasts that are very technical on the floor and they're, they're talking about people's heads and they're kind of just not understanding the customer. This is a person that maybe going to ride this thing twice a week and I need to speak to them at that level, not at a level of, you know, talking to my buddies outside of a coffee house, and we're gonna go out and ride 50 miles.
2: If somebody comes up to you and says, what's your best story about a bicycle? What would that, what story would come to your mind? Oh
1: my God, there's so many. I mean, bicycles have been a part of my life, you know, since I was a young kid and I was a very small kid. In ninth grade, I was 87 pounds and I was (laughs) 4'11". So my <laughs> athletic abilities were very limited. I mean, we're, I'm from this, I'm from the state of Iowa. Everybody wrestled. I mean, we looked up to people like Randy Lewis and other University of Iowa wrestlers, you know, and that's what everybody wanted to do when I was a little kid. But, you know, I was fascinated by road bikes. There was, an, there was a gentleman that lived in my neighborhood that had a different bike than anyone else. I remember the wheelbase being really short. I remember the, the rear. Her freewheel was very small. It was like almost like a little corn cob. Um, he would get dressed up before he went riding. He had a jersey on. He had shorts on. Um, I can remember him going out, and I was fascinated by him. And I would try to ride behind him as far as I could before he kind of disappeared from the neighborhood. So that was kind of like my early reflections of of road bikes.
0: On the show, when he says he's a bicycle guy you have no idea it comes through (laughs) through the filter of the show yeah he is a bicycle guy but when you talk to him person to person the guy's a reservoir
1: um i've done everything in this industry you know, I mean, I was a bicycle messenger in Chicago. I worked for a company there called Palace Photo that was on Erie. And that was back when, you know, Kodak was still in business it's when we had film and cameras. Basically, my job was is to go to commercial photo shoots, pick up rolls of film, take them back to Palace Photo, they were developed, and then bring them back to them in a slide form so they could look at it under an eyeglass in a slide to see how what the pictures looked like. Those days, you know, I mean, Michigan Avenue was crazy and um, taxi drivers and bus drivers wanted to kill you, you know, they wanted you on the sidewalk, but it was against the law to ride on a sidewalk and um, I did that one winter and I don't remember, I, I can remember that like it was yesterday, and there was a couple alleys that a lot of messengers would hang out in where heat was coming off of a furnace or something and, you know, have a few cocktails and and, uh, smoke some grass or whatever, you know, and it was a neat job. And I think I did it just because of the challenge of it, you know it was something that was bicycle related and uh it was cool i remember getting so close to a parked car one time and to a bus he actually saw me on the right side and he kept coming closer 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 i had to jump up onto the top tube of the bike and the pedal cranks on the bike got smashed with the handlebars in between the bus and the car you know i mean that's when i was basically about done and then i remember hitting a woman on michigan avenue and i think i broke her ankle (laughs) Um, and it was crazy and I was going to school at Harry S. Truman on Wilson for one year and uh, that was one thing I did in the bike industry and then you know I was also a bicycle builder and what I mean by that is I would build bikes for a shop I I worked out of a warehouse and everybody was promised a job if they did a good job building bikes through the winter, and they did it in a timely fashion. You were just a good employee, so I can remember working so hard all winter long building bikes. I think I was building like twelve road bikes a day. I was, I mean, I could wrap handlebars in a minute, man, <laughs> from the bottom up, pew, done. And we were building Bridgestones. I remember. Anyway, at the end of the winter, we were all standing there. And like it was some, some sort of grade school volleyball game or something, you know. And I got picked. And I was like, yes. And I worked in uh, on 18th Avenue in Rock Island as a mechanic at that shop. And that guy's name was Steve Dupron that owned that shop. And that shop's name was Bike and Hike. And he gave me a lot of opportunity. And I watched him sell bikes. I watched him understand the customer. I watched him merchandise the store. I watched him, um, as far as the way it was laid out, the lighting, the, the pathways. He was really ahead of his time in regards to how he was merchandising his store. He wasn't just a passionate guy that loved bikes that opened a business. He was a guy that actually understood business and then opened a shop because it's always the other part of it it's like hey I'm a passionate guy I love bicycles I'm gonna open a bicycle shop and not understanding the day-to-day of it you know the numbers thing so I learned a lot from him but the guys that would come in the shop all the time that I was so impressed with and I was so jealous and I wanted their job so bad was sales reps man They'd come driving in their Volvo station wagons, you know, and they had badass bikes on the roof, and they had the best Thule racks, and they had all the nice clothing and everything, and they would come into the shop. And I was like, God, if I can only be a sales rep, you know, that was like my biggest dream. And then um I can remember I don't know if you remember Wheeler Bikes. Did you ever do you remember those that brand? German based company. German-based, a yeah, it was a German based company out of and they, but they were made in Taiwan and they came into the US and they were looking for sales reps. So I went for it. I was like, heck, I'm gonna try this and they gave me the whole Midwest territory. So they like, hey, take Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Missouri, you know?
2: <laughs>
1: and I had this little blue Jetta and uh, they, they sent me some samples and I started driving around all these areas. I'm calling on dealers and um, I was doing well with it because I came from where they were at. I had run a shop, I was in a shop every day for years, and I knew the biggest thing that they wanted to hear was that they were gonna be protected if they carried wheeler bikes. Meaning, hey, if you commit to me, I'm gonna to commit to you. So if you are gonna to commit to me in St. Louis as far as being a wheeler bicycle dealer, then guess what? There is no other dealer in St. Louis, you're, you're it. And so they love that. So I was doing really well with it. And then at that time, I picked up. I was working for a company called Veltech Boyer, and we were doing wasn't Look pedals and CD shoes. And then I was also the ASOS clothing rep, which was all very beautiful, handmade. Basically, I guess you'd call it exotic road bike clothing that was incredible. So I was selling all this stuff. I was and I was working for Salsa, selling mangoes, diamore bar ends, you know, (laughs) and a and a frame every once in a while. But um. You know, those were those were interesting times for me because everything was everything was um on commission, you know, and a lot of these companies didn't pay out until product was delivered. So I had to pick basically full time while I was doing that to make some money. So if I drove by an old barn or a run down bar on the way to Minnesota on a back road, I would stop in the bar and say, Hey, do you got any old neons in the basement? Or blah 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 and he'd be like, Yeah and so I'd buy that stuff and I'd sell it in the next town down the road and that's really what financed me being a sales rep for all these years.
2: (laughs) I want to thank you. just want to take the time because uh, I have spent the last 10 years or so picking and basically living out part of the dream of that, mostly because of uh, your show and just the uh, education that you've given me from that. I really appreciate it. It's helped me in so many different ways. Like the phraseology you would use. I grew up with a grandmother. She'd have a yard sale, but it'd be the same stuff every year. And she'd tell me how bad and horrible dealers were because they didn't want to pay what she wanted for it. And she died with all the same stuff from a yard sale. So seeing pickers and seeing how dealers would actually treat each other with respect, and there was a game that was being played, uh, and how, you know, some of your phraseology, such as the nibble and the bundle, and let's put that to the side for now, instead of saying something bad about the guy's overvaluation of a price. I mean, it was just, the show is such a great education for stuff like that, and uh, I just want to take a check. Thank you for saying that.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. I pitched the show for five years, and it was really more about storytelling. The show was about storytelling, and then the vehicle to tell People's stories was obviously to buy things from them and to dig through their attics and basements. But I think what's happened with it is it's kind of become a show about all of us. And what I mean by that is not all collectors, but people that spend any time whatsoever reflecting. You know, if you're someone that reflects or if you're someone that understands you're having a moment, you know? Like during the day, if you're out doing something and you have a moment with a person, it's so nice to stop and go, I had a moment, you know? And I think a lot of us, even myself, we don't do that very much. And it's, uh, kind of a scary world we live in with social media and, and like what's been dubbed fake news now and all these things. It's like, you know, I mean, I, uh, I'm standing in a building that's 1857 in Columbia, Tennessee. And the reason I'm in Columbia, Tennessee is because I'm an I've, I've invested in it is because it feels like the world should be. It feels like the world used to be. To me the people are very nice the architecture is incredible but there's an energy here that i really love i bought this building about three years ago and right below me is a trek dealership i actually rent to a bicycle (laughs) shop and they're great guys and when i bought this building it had a bicycle shop in it i told ac the guy that that i bought the building from i said listen i go if i buy this building from you trust me there's going to be a bike shop down here still You know, I wanted, I understood the importance of having a bike shop in this town, not obviously because everybody needs a quality bike, but because a bike shop is a place of community. It's a place where people can go and be themselves. And obviously, in order for it to stay open, there has to be exchange of money. But, you know, if you truly love bikes and truly love the history of them and what they're all about, then you understand that a bike shop is way more than just ringing stuff out at the cash register, you know. I love bicycles, man, and, they, and I do miss the bike industry a lot. You know, I had two stores. The, one, the first store I had was in Eldridge, Iowa. I bought that store and been around for about 15 years. And the guy I bought it from was a client of mine when I was a sales rep. And I went in there one day and he's like, hey, I'm going to sell the store. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry, man. I was kind of bummed he was selling it because I really I enjoyed working with him. And, and he goes, you should buy it. And I didn't think I could, but the number he gave me was doable. So when I walked in, he goes, when do you want the store? And I said, I don't know. What's good for you? And he goes, how about next Thursday? It's yours. And listen to this. You're going to dig this. So I go, I had been in bike shops for a number of years at that point, And I understood how hard it was to get credit. So I go, no one's going to give me credit. None of these bike companies are going to give me credit. And his biggest dealer, but his biggest brand that time was GT. He goes, why don't we do this? He goes, why don't you just work here? Back, he goes, why don't you tell them you're working here as the manager? And he goes, after a year, tell them you own the place, and maybe they'll probably give you credit. So he was selling a very small amount of bikes. He was he was selling like 100 bikes a year, and I took it to like 450 the first year. And the sales reps are coming in. They're going, man, Mark should have hired you a long time ago, man. You are kicking butt here. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're <laughs> just, just rolling through it, you know, selling nuke-proof hubs, man at two frames man forks and, and we were killing it with dt and i think i picked up a gary fisher and specialized at that time and we were rolling through it and everything and then um at the end of the year um at the bike show i remember i went to chicago i go listen man i go mark has not owned this store for a year i own this store and i want credit with you and they did it they gave me credit i couldn't believe it <laughs> <laughs> and my second location dig this my second location i was driving through this historic district it was davenport iowa and this little old lady was putting a sign in the window for rent i go in there and i'm like how much is the rent she, i think it was like 500 bucks or something like she goes 500 dollars she goes what do you want to do i go "I want to open a bike shop here so a friend of mine he was a mountain bike racer and everybody called him uncle nabby <laughs> And Uncle Navi, he would take scrap wood and whatever it was. We hung like barn board all over the walls. And this is way before that was trending. I mean, this is like, gosh, 20 years ago, you know, or something. And so we hung barn board all over the walls and, and I put paper over the windows. And I had, listen to this, I had no money whatsoever to open the store. I bought a cash register for like $50 at Staples. I put $50 cash in the cash register. I called back and I said, listen, I go, I want, 50 bicycles delivered to this address, you know, because they gave me credit. It was winter dating, so they dropped 50 bikes in there. We freaking built them. We pulled the paper off three days before Christmas, and it's like, boom, Village Bike Shop. Here you go. That store was open for 11 years
2: <laughs>
1: with no money. I had $500 in renting it. I had 50 I had $100 in the cash register, and the money that was in the cash register, and then just the drive and the passion to do it, like the, the sheer fact of like naive, going, there's nobody, nobody that's going to tell me I can't do this.
2: So what would you tell a guy today doing that same type of thing, having that same type of passion? It seems like that formula would be really hard to play out today.
1: It would be extremely hard to play out today because there's a lot of different factors that are happening now. When I opened that store, you had to worry about mail order catalogs. You had to worry about Nash bar. You had to worry about performance, you know, and not too many people would even risk doing something like that. Mail order in itself was not new, but buying bicycles was new. Like to actually spend that kind of money without seeing it, touching it and riding it in a catalog and then having it shift to your house was, was a very foreign idea in some ways. Those guys did well, but not like Amazon and stuff today, obviously. So now these dealers, what they have to put up with and struggle through is online sales, you know, and that's a real thing. So it's really about service, service, service to me. The money to be made in a bike shop is obviously service and parts and accessories. If you can open a bike shop and not sell bikes, then you're gold. And then also you can carry all the things that all the other shops can't afford to carry or have the square footage to. So if you don't have bikes, think of all the shoes you can carry. Think of all the shorts you can carry. Think of all the forks that you can carry. Think of all the wheel sets. Think of all that stuff, you know, and bags and all that. I mean, obviously people can buy that stuff online, but you're offering a small space where they can actually put their hands on it connected to the bike. You have knowledge of the product and all of that. When I was a bike dealer, if you were getting 38% on a bike, you were doing good. And that was my Univega line. And Univega and Raleigh were connected to each other then. There's a lot of shops now. I feel it's tougher. And what has to happen is the more personal side has to be even more powerful. You know, the relationship side has to be more powerful. You can still get dating, You can still do that, obviously, if you have credit, and you can still rent spaces in smaller communities that the rents aren't that high. But it's like any other business, it's tough, and you have to, I don't care what you're doing, if you're selling aluminum siding or you're selling bicycles, you have to have an online presence that's strong as well. So it's it's a different time, you know? That's what I was saying earlier. It's like, you know, I'm glad I was involved with it and raced through it at a smaller pace, you know? I mean, when I was a Category 4 and was content at that, it was 1988, you know, 89, and through the early 90s, I think the last road race or crit that I did was 1998, and I just walked away from it. Imagine what's happened not just in the bike shop business-wise, but technology-wise since then. It's a different animal, and and I respect anyone that's in the business still.
2: People say, like, I'm a science teacher and they say, Tom, you love bikes. When you retire, you're going to open a bike shop. And I'm like, no, because everything you're saying is absolutely true. You know, it's like your idea about what a bike shop in 2018 should look like seems so freaking counterintuitive, but then it's brilliant. It's like, if you're going to open a bike shop in 2018, don't sell bikes, (laughs) but then you explain it and it's like, well, yeah, that, that makes sense for this day and age that makes sense you know it's either you're going to have a bike co-op that's going to be a non-profit that looks more like an old-timey bike shop or you're going to have something new that does not look like the old-timey bike shops Um, yeah
1: i am like this the trek the trek dealership that's below me this is his third location he's in a couple different towns in alabama and wanted to be here because you know columbia's thirty eight thousand people you know, he saw that there's a market for it here, but he's been really good at like having community ride. He's got a really strong Instagram account. You know, he also has, the, the owner has the ability to pull from other stores that he has with inventory. And then, you know, the cool, Trek is an interesting animal, man. I mean, when I dealt with him, it was a company called Intrepid. And Intrepid had Klein, Gary Fisher, Bond Trigger, and Trek okay and so what they had done to us when i was a gary fisher dealer was they opened up three gary fisher dealers within within a mile and a half from each other okay so what happened was we all just were there to fight it out and i could go lower than anybody i thought because i owned my building i had a coffee house next door that was giving me rent and i had an apartment upstairs that was giving me rent so it was like hey you want to mess around let's do it so it was like a gunslinging thing it wasn't anything that was enjoyable they knew what they were doing they knew what they were doing when they opened up three Gary Fisher dealers within a mile from each other. They didn't give a shit. It's and unfortunately, I hate to say it, but it's you know it's corporate America. So when Trek had all these big dealers in Madison huge dealers like Budget Bikes and a couple other ones that really built the brand. And then they walked in and they opened up a company store downtown Madison on top of these guys, you know, and and they had all the merchandising and they had all the glamour and everything to to the location. Obviously, they built something that no one else could build because they could afford it. They kind of tore that thing down. You know, it's worked for them because now, you know, there's a lot of Trek stores opening. But what's the difference between a Trek store and a Schwinn store? From back in the '50s, when when you went into the shop in the '50s, and all they carried was Schwinn products—Schwinn brake cables, Schwinn chains, Schwinn this, Schwinn that—they come in, they merchandise your store, and which is a great thing because you know it takes it to the next level visually. When the customer comes in, you know it really kind of shrinks down on some of the other smaller components that you can buy, you know, like what smaller companies—whether it's clothing, whether it's hubs, whether it's wheel sets, you know, whether it's seats, whatever it is, you know, if you want some to support even some of these smaller companies like Jand or I remember Blackburn was really big with bags then, you know, and rear racks, front racks. You can't do that if you're a Trek dealer, dealer store dealer mean, I mean, like if you're actually a Trek store because I think 80% of your merchandise has to be Trek, you know, and I'm not saying all this stuff to beat up on them. What I'm saying is the industry has changed. It's changed a lot. And I think that the independent bike dealer can still survive, obviously they can, because they're all over America, but they are shrinking in number because of the trend of how people shop. The only thing that's gonna survive is the guys that are very knowledgeable that understand the importance of how their store is laid out whether it's lighting whether it's display whether it's the fixtures that they have custom built whatever it is why does some survive and why does some go away there's really no ifs ands or buts in regards to like what happens what i mean by that is one guy could be financially successful, but he's just tired of throwing money into it. You know, and another guy can start it from nothing like I did and be at it for 11 years. If you would have talked, I, you couldn't even pull me out of my bike shop. It'd be one in the morning. My girlfriend would call me. She's like, you coming home? I'm like, no, I wouldn't. I, I never, ever thought I would leave the bike industry. I was in it till the day that I died. I was in it that long, but I had a store burned down. I had a crappy partnership at one time, and it just got a bad taste in my mouth to the point where, and then eBay came out, and eBay changed my life. You know, it really did. It was like, hey, I don't have to have a store. I can sell all my antique bikes online.
2: So this leads into a question I want to ask you. Right now, you and I and everybody else is a picker or a flipper or just interested in old bikes, we're living from the bounty of a golden age of bikes that were serviceable for years and years and years if you took care of them. Where do you think the picker's gonna be 50 years from now with carbon and aluminum with a limited lifespan to it? Where do you think that future picker is gonna be at?
1: Um, I mean, I'm looking at a wood frame bike in the loft that I'm sitting in now. It's called a Chillion. So the frame is wood, the wheels are wood, the handlebars are wood on this bike. It was made in the 1890s. Okay, the reason it's collectible is because of the materials it was made from. It was very innovative back then. So if you look at all the innovation that's happening now, with mixing steel and titanium together or the different types of carbon fiber, whether it's bladder molded or it's got lugs in it or whatever. There's still small companies that are making hubs and cranks and all of that. That's the stuff that's going to be collectible is the stuff that's expensive on the edge and made in small numbers. No, I don't think a Trek $300 hybrid is ever going to be collectible in our lifetime, but I think that I used to ride on a Kestrel 500 okay remember kestro when they first came out the 500 they were incredibly beautiful bikes you know that was 1989 those bikes are really sought after right now and they're collectible because they made them in few numbers they were innovative and they were cutting edge in a lot of ways and they just were something that visually changed the way people thought a bicycle should look so i guess if pickers are going to be out there 50 to 100 years from now What they're going to be looking for are these smaller off-brand that were deluxe models. Like, for example, that's the same thing I'm looking for now. Smaller off-brand American bikes that were deluxe models like Roadmaster Supremes and Schwinn AeroCycles and Shelby Airflows and Elgin Bluebirds and Elgin Twin 60s and, you know, Elgin Robins and Schwinn Autocycles and motorbikes and all of these things. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm looking for the rarest of the rare and they were rare back then because a lot of people couldn't afford them and they were deluxe bikes. They had everything on them. They had lights on the front fenders and, and crossbar speedometers and pogo seats and rear racks with taillights in them and drum front brakes and two speed gears on some of them It was an accessory. I mean, to go on and on and on, that's the stuff I'm looking for and that's the stuff that's hot right now. So that's probably what will be hot. Like, look at Campagnolo. If you look at Croce Down A and Chorus and Delta brakes, all that stuff, I remember when I was riding it and that was 80, 88, 89. Well, look at now. That stuff's all extremely collectible. People are collecting campy toolkits. People are collecting campy this, campy that, because it was exotic, it was cutting edge, and it was expensive back in the day. So I think I think it will always be the same thing. You know, anything that's made cookie cutter that was inexpensive, especially now in our society, that's what we're surrounded by. When you walked into a bike shop fifty years ago, you didn't buy anything that was cookie cutter that was inexpensively made. Everything was made to last forever. I mean, gosh, you could look at a a twenty inch Schwinn. Right now, it's bomb-proof. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's still probably the strongest bike, you know, on the block, no matter what other kids are riding. They, they were made to last, man. That's, nothing's like that anymore unless you want to spend the money.
2: How many different bicycle brands and makes do you think there have been? So if, oh if you disregarded the unit. This is something you can't Google. You cannot Google, you know, what are the total number of bicycle brands and models that ever were. I can't even imagine a a degree magnitude to guess at how many there would have been.
1: Yeah, it would be in the tens of thousands. You know, I mean, there were so many small manufacturers around the turn of the century when bicycles really took off. That you know, and there were so many patents that were being pushed forward and a lot of the things that we think are interesting and neat today and cutting edge it's already happened it it happened a hundred years ago you know and so it's like everything just kind of recirculates in some ways and I tell you what has changed I mean when I had my shop every once in a while I sold a four thousand dollar road bike you know every once in a while obviously that wasn't my bread and butter but now I mean it's not unusual now for someone to spend seven grand to 15 grand on a road bike i mean that's that's the reality of it people are doing it you know you could never ever do that when i had a shop those bikes didn't even exist you know so that's one thing that's changed dramatically is the price of of some of the bikes you know i mean yeah you can still buy a bike for 250 dollars in a bike shop but you know there are people out there that will spend the big money and on a pretty consistent basis Man, those were the days, man. I mean, that was like, you know, I was 14 years old, and I was blown away by that stuff. I mean, that was like looking at an exotic motorcycle or car to me. Bicycles were it. You know, I didn't even get my driver's license until I was 18 years old. I I never wanted a car. I didn't need a car. I had a bike. And then when I moved to Colorado, I bought a one-way bus ticket when I was 17 years old. The way I got my money was I sold my Miata road bike. I remember being so bummed I sold my Miata road bike. You were (laughs) the... That was
2: 1983. I have a 1983 Miata road bike. It's a 310. <laughs> Do yeah, love it. I love it. I know. I
1: can't remember what model mine was. It might have been a 310. I don't know, but but I, I most underrated bike right brand ever. Oh, they were incredible. You know, and they had a warehouse in Chicago, and I actually interviewed for them. And there was this tool bag dude that was interviewing. He was like, well, "Describe this bike to me." And he goes, he's pointing at all the parts. He's like, I go, that's a derailleur, that's a front derailleur, you know, that's a down tube, top tube, seat, stay, chain stay, head tube, whatever, you know. He's like, what's this called? He goes, the handlebar stem. He's like, okay, what's that? He goes, he goes, well, I don't think we're going to give you the job. And I go, oh yeah, Why is that? And he goes, you didn't say it was a long cage derailleur.
4: <laughs>
1: and I was like, okay, well, if you're that big a tool, I don't think I want to work here, dude. <laughs> And, you know, this is, I was just like devastated though. I was like, oh my god, I didn't get the job at Miata. <laughs> Do
2: you still ride, and what do you ride?
1: I do still ride, and but not as much as I'd like to. I mean, I think I got up to one point in time last summer, riding like three days a week. And I'm really lucky I live outside of Nashville, and I live basically at the entrance of the Natchez Trace. And the Natchez Trace you know, is a national parkway that runs from Nashville down to Natchez, Mississippi, and they don't allow trucks on it or anything. So it's not unusual to ride on that road to see maybe three or four cars and actually more cyclists than you do cars. It's a beautiful road, I recommend anybody riding it. But um, I ride a Focus, and I didn't even know who the hell Focus was. It was a carbon bike with Dura-Ace, and I did a video, I was asked to do a video for um, women's cycling organization about I don't know, five years ago for some awards dinner they were having in San Francisco. And I was like, yeah, I'd be honored to. And they said, oh, we'll send you a bike. And I thought, oh, yeah, they're going to send me some beach cruiser or something, you know. And they sent me a carbon fiber focus with Dura-Ace on it. And I was like, this is great. Yeah, I was like, wow, okay, these guys are serious, you know. And that's the bike I ride. I was a decent rider, like, I can't remember what year it was. I won the. State time trial championships in Iowa as a Cat 4, and I always finished, you know, in the top 3 in Cat 4 racing with crits, you know. I can remember. I remember I was riding, in, I was racing in Itala in Downers Grove, Illinois. It was the state criterium championships for the Chicago Sun Times, and I had Chorus Campagnolo on my bike. And the SRAM guys like, let me put some, let's do it was some some drop tube shifters on there, man. Blah 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, you know. So I put it on there right before. They like literally were installing the stuff right there. I'm like, okay, put it on my bike. So he puts it on the bike. I do my race, and I had no sprint whatsoever. I, if I didn't break away with like the, into the first corner and try to get away I knew I was gonna get eaten up in a sprint so I would always bonsai it on the on the last lap to try to get away from the sprinters and so I do that and I'm like looking I'm, I'm like I'm, I'm hitting it I'm hitting it I'm getting closer to the finish line closer to the finish line I'm like oh my god I think I'm gonna win this thing I'm gonna win this thing and my bike started going tunk, 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 tunk. it's like in between gears and I'm trying to shift that SRAM back then and um this guy just sticks his bike out next to me and wins and, and it was so close it was like a photo finish thing and I was so pissed I took my bike I remember and I threw it over at the the SRAM tent guy dude I was like dude what is this crap you know
2: <laughs>
1: and obviously they've refined it since then I mean this is 1989 dude okay 89 <laughs> brother almost like what tw- almost 20 years ago so now it's like you know now this stuff's like king but back then it was it was, it was, it, it was, that's what I'm saying to you. It, everything was like on the cutting edge. Yeah, I, um, I can't walk by a bike shop to this day without going in. You know, I just want to see the way it's merchandised. I want to see the product that they're carrying. There's a shop in uh, Boulder towards the end of the mall. I think that's University Bikes. I like going to that shop because he's a collector. He's got a lot of stuff hanging from the ceiling, but he also goes out on a limb, you know what I mean? Like, like he's not afraid to to try things. He's got a lot of interesting, unique brands there, and the staff is cool. The shop is laid out really awesome. But Iowa has a lot of bike history. There's a lot of neat bike history in Iowa, especially you know with ragbri. It's been around for so long now that a lot of people have kind of grown up with it and have good stories to tell about ragbri and small towns in Iowa. And, and they understand if you ride ragbri, you understand that, that, that Iowa is not flat by any means.
2: Yeah, everything seems to be pushing me towards doing ragbri. So, yeah, you gotta you know. do it, man. You gotta yeah. do ragbri. All right. You gotta do ragbri. Expected. It is
1: a blast. Seriously, it's a good time.
2: Uh, when I first started this podcast three years ago, I'm like, someday I'll have the hood to, go to give Mike a call. And I'm
1: glad you did. I really am. I, I just started listening to a few podcasts myself. Um, Aaron Mankey has become a friend of mine. He's got lore podcasts. And um, I love listening to podcasts because people used to sit and listen to the radio. And the radio would tell stories, and it's neat, you know? So my crew and I, we listen to podcasts all the time when we're driving home at night from filming, it's dark, we're on backcountry roads, and you know, that's the first thing we do is, you know, decide on what podcast we're going to listen to. So I think it's great what you're doing. I remember now what podcast i listened to of yours just recently was the uh, the Viscount, the Death Fork. Oh yeah, that's an old one. We used yeah, we used to ride those bikes. I, we used to ride by counts. I mean, they were older when we uh, rode them. I was like, you know, 1980, and those bikes, I think, came out in the late 70s, and they, they did have a cast aluminum fork on it. There were a couple of them still, I remember, around in the neighborhood, and everybody's like, everybody was still riding them. They, they didn't take them into the shop to get them converted. And those were beautiful bikes because it was like a, the crown on the fork was really sloped, and they were polished aluminum, and then the, the bikes were like gray and black, they were beautiful bikes, man. The, and the crank set on them was incredible. See, that bike, I feel, will be collectible, and it is it is collectible because it was something that looked so different in that time period, and it could be the smallest detail, like the crown of the fork and the fork being polished, stuff like that. I mean, it was just, and the name itself was interesting, and and the geometry was neat on it, you know. So it's like that. That I could see being something that could be. Be collectible. And obviously, the history of the mass recall on the fork, too, is interesting as well. There's a story there.
2: Where would you go to check out and learn more?
1: Um, You can watch us at History.com. We're still on Monday nights at 8 o'clock. I've got a store in Nashville, Tennessee, downtown, in an old car dealership. And then we've got our flagship store in Iowa, in LeClaire, Iowa. And um, we've got a lot of antique bicycles on display in both stores. And I encourage people to come into the shops. We, I'm, I'm in the Nashville store quite a bit, maybe once a week when I'm home, and I love talking to people about bikes, and I love talking to them about the show. So if you see me, please come up and say hello.
2: Thank you so much. You've been very gracious, and I was going to ask you for one more favor.
1: What's that? This is Mike Wolf from American Pickers, and you're listening to the Bike Karma podcast. Is that the way you want me to
2: say it? I got goosebumps.
1: Thank you so much. (laughs) Let me say it. Let me say it one more time for you. You ready?
2: All right. Yep.
1: This is Mike Wolf from American Pickers, and you are listening to the Bite Karma Podcast.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for everything. Hey, thanks
1: for the opportunity. I appreciate you. All
2: right. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, Taryn. Hey.
0: Um, I think I get a little carried away with the intro to this next piece.
2: Yeah? Do
0: You think I should say something about it to, like, warn people? Or no, just play it? Or should I tell them that I got a a little crazy in the beginning?
2: I think this counts.
0: Oh. Yeah, I guess you're right.
2: This is
4: human-powered vehicle every year to compete in NASA's Human Rover Exploration Challenge. Yeah, we go through and build everything of a two-person human-powered vehicle from scratch, so composite wheels, chromoly frame, um, yeah.
0: I saw your booth last year, and this year it actually looks like it could be on another planet. What's up with that?
4: Uh, I think we, uh, we took a lot of what we learned from last year and just constant improvements of the format, and uh, we made it look more aggressive, for sure. We got the forward-facing A-arms, it's kind of like a Romulan spaceship or something. The carbon fiber work, we introduced a new process using pre-preg carbon fiber instead of uh, infusion layup, which makes everything just a lot cleaner and easier to work with. The footprint shrunk a lot with the wheelbase and the uh, rider spacing, so that allowed us to come up with a smaller vehicle. Uh, it's much more accessible, it doesn't feel like such a Goliath. So one per- sense forward the other person's backwards facing? yes uh, we have the riders facing opposite direction because of the the format just allows a more compact wheelbase and vehicle overall so what was the overall mission objective for this So NASA's Human Rover Exploration Challenge is a uh, competition that happens every year in Huntsville, Alabama. The concept of the challenge is basically to kind of draw upon what the original challenges were for the Moon Rover and um, challenge universities to kind of come up with their own two-person vehicle. Uh, so we go down there and we compete about with about a, a hundred other schools from around the world to kind of complete an obstacle course and complete tasks on that obstacle course to accumulate points in this competition. So it's half time trial, half Completing the task this year, we were doing really well. Uh, we were the lightest overall at the competition. Uh, we were 99 pounds, the vehicle overall, and the next lightest was about 150 pounds.
0: This is for a two-person, three-wheeled vehicle with fat bike tires. Yes. Uh, so
4: that, uh,
0: that's not as bad as it sounds at first.
4: That's actually pretty, yes. pretty lightweight. Yes, and. Um, Everything made pretty much completely made by the team, except for the crank set and uh, drivetrain and brakes. All the wheels and seats were fabricated in-house at Rhode Island School of Design, and designed by our team. The steering, everything.
0: So what place did you come in again?
4: This year we actually didn't perform that well because we had a minor mechanical failure during the race. Uh, We were poised to do really well the second day, but then they cancelled it due to weather. So we're hoping to do better this year. In previous years, uh, we've come in second place the two years prior to this one. So we're hoping for first this year.
0: In terms of looks, what would you have given yourself a place for? Uh,
4: Um, I think it's
0: a 10. I think it's it's really good. I think it would get badass of the competition first class. Thank you. (laughs) I know imagination is part of science and engineering. Did you guys like picture yourself on the moon?
4: Uh, yeah, for the uh, when we were doing uh, trials with the vehicle and we brought it to the park, we kind of created some obstacles that would simulate maybe like what we, we would like see at the competition, like some rocks and some moon rocks and some really heavy terrain. And yeah, uh, luckily during the competition we don't actually have to wear a spacesuit. Um, It'd be really hot in Alabama in April. But, yeah, uh,
0: yeah would. Yeah, so you could wear normal clothes. Yes. So hear that spandex wearing guys, you can wear normal clothes and ride a moon bike. You don't need fancy clothes. Okay cool, well thank you very much. If people want to find out more about the RISD program, you can
4: follow us on Instagram at RISD Rover, all one word. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: If one of small
2: still the man One family the
0: Last year, I met Rich at the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. He's from UBI, and here's his story.
3: So, my name is Rich Bernoulli, I'm from Ashland, Oregon. So you're here at
0: the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, and you basically represent a UBI. That is correct. The United Bicycle Institute, so one of the places in the world where you can go to be trained as a bicycle mechanic, frame builder, all that good
3: stuff. What's the funny thing that what jumps to your mind as a story? So one of the stories that I had was, uh, I'm not going to name the student's name of course, but we had a student that showed up to take a frame class and he was so enthusiastic about uh, what his possibilities and future were going to be like that he quit his very well-established, very well-paid job and took out a $20,000 loan, purchased all the equipment that you could possibly think of to buy to uh, to build frames and uh, took our course and the first few days realized that welding is not easy and he, bur- <laughs> he burned a lot of holes, blew a lot of holes and uh, maybe thought a couple times about what his future life decisions were going to be like and um, ended up building a frame, doing really well actually, but uh, did find out later that he went home and got his job back. So he's still building frames as a hobby, but found out that maybe it's a little more difficult to uh, get into than he had previously expected. It was more of a romantic idea, but yeah, it's still fun to keep in touch with him and know that he's still building frames. So you guys get everybody, the hobbyist to the professional, coming through. You name it, we get it. We get the people that they want to build frames for the rest of their life and take over the world building frames. And then we get people that are just completely comfortable just building one frame and knowing that they built a bike that they're riding. And they did you know the geometry and the drawing and the, the fabrication behind it. For people who aren't cyclists, if you really enjoy food, you
0: eventually learn how to cook. If you really enjoy riding you at least
3: get curious about how to build a bicycle from scratch. I don't know how you don't to be honest but um, if you're in cycling long enough you'll hear about United Bicycle Institute, you're, you'll probably run into somebody that's uh, built their own frames or thought about it and uh, yeah it's, I still get goosebumps when I think about turning raw tubes that can lay on a table into a bicycle frame that you know it's freedom it gets you you know across town it gets you up in the air it gets you down the trail it's it's um, it's inspiring but uh, yeah if you're in the bike industry or you're in the bikes long enough I don't know how this doesn't come across your radar at some point all right so if people want to check it out and quit their job and, and come join the circus where where would they go? So you can find us initially, most people find us at our website, we're at bikeschool.com, but we're also on Instagram, at United Bicycle, and um, Facebook as well, we're on all that stuff, but yeah, if, uh, if you have any questions, bikeschool.com, or you can call us as well, and we're happy to help out. That's great.
0: thanks for coming along for the ride on another episode of the bike karma bicycle podcast i really appreciate you coming here to check things out if you like our opening and closing themes then check out keller glass and the band Jack. thank you very much keller for letting us use your songs you can find them at mobjackmusic.com or anywhere where you get music yeah and the whole rest of the album is just as good Want to thank everybody on social media for interacting and reaching out Uh, especially i like your bike for saying some nice supportive stuff about the show to me to kirby b for leaving us a really nice review on apple Podcasts. thank you very much to ride and mend for liking a whole bunch of pictures in a row and thank you cycling fool for the nice note thanks to mike sam and rich for sharing your stories on the show Thanks to Uncle the Podcast. Hey, Uncle. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me on the show the other day. You can go check them out too at Uncle the Podcast and their companion show, Trans Resistor Radio. Also, thank you for new followers on Podbeam Johnny, P Turner66PT, B I U S D P, Nifra, High XMI, Bikes Burpee, and Pink Fox in Knit Socks, I think. A special thank you for all the patient people waiting in the queue. Apparently, I have recorded enough stories for the next five episodes, but I'm still looking for good stories for the next episodes after that. So you can email me at bikekarmaguy@gmail.com at gmail.com with any comments or feedback on the show or with story ideas. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including trademarks, copyrights, and all that stuff are reserved and asserted. If you have a bicycle-related product and you'd like to help me pay for this show, that's awesome. Contact me on any social media or the email. New stickers are available just for the asking. And hey, they're round this time. Check them out on Instagram and get yours just by DMing me your address and I will send them to you. Absolutely free to the first as many people as stamps that I have. I'll probably send you extra so you can share them with your friends and stick them all over the place. Responsibly, of course. And now Taryn has something he wants to say.
2: Don't forget to do your ABC quick check. A stands for air. B stands for brakes. C stands for chain line. Quick stands for quick release. And don't forget to check up your bike.
0: Till next time.
2: Keep it weird! RING RING